time when Iowa voters feel very special. 19 of the 23 candidates in Iowa today. An incredible honor to campaign across Iowa with so many of you. Thank you, Iowa. We love Iowa. Thank you very much. The state of Iowa has spoken. This is political theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of the politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. We're podcasting from the Iowa State Fair in Des Moines. Why Iowa? Because that's where the politics and the corn dogs are. The Hawkeye State plays a big role in presidential politics because its caucuses are the first on the calendar in registering votes for candidates. Even by that standard, though, Iowa this time around feels busier, more significant. There are more than 20 Democrats running for president, and unlike in previous years, no one is riding the state off. There are also several competitive congressional races. That means a very busy Iowa State Fair this time because all these politicians want to meet voters, make their case at the Des Moines Register's political soapbox, flip pork chops at the pork tent, and eat. Our first podcast from Iowa was a day in the life. We hope it gave you a sense of what it was like to be here. For this episode, we are delving deeper into the political theater here at the fair and in Iowa. We talked to David Redlosk, the chairman of the University of Delaware Political Science Department, a former Iowa resident himself and a political psychologist and expert on voter behavior. He moved here to spend his entire sabbatical in Iowa. When we talked to him at the fair, he explained just what it is about Iowa that makes it the center of the political universe. I spent 10 years as a professor at the University of Iowa, where I not only studied the caucuses, but participated in them as well. And in 2004, as the chair of the Democratic Party in Johnson County, was responsible for 57 precinct caucuses in that cycle. You're on sabbatical right now, but you're living here in Iowa. You moved to Iowa for your sabbatical. I have moved to Iowa for my sabbatical, much like candidates sometimes move to Iowa for the caucuses. Uh I'm spending six months in Iowa City, and I will be traveling around the state following the campaigns. And I I read somewhere, or maybe you tweeted it or something, that you're uh, you're actually uh, using former Congressman Jim Leach's office at the university. So just a little something for our listeners. I am. I remember Jim yeah, Leach. Well, I remember Jim Leach very well because there's another little bit to that, which is when I was at the University of Iowa in 2006, I was on leave. I worked in Dave Loebsack's challenger campaign. Okay. I was Loebsack's treasurer. It's not much of a job when you're a challenger. No one expects to win. Right. And in fact, we did win. So I helped beat Jim Leach. And, and which shows the, the kind of play nice politics kind of at work yeah. in Iowa and in Delaware too. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. In Delaware, we call it the Delaware way. Here, it's called Iowa nice. And, and Congressman Lobsack, of course, is retiring at the end of this circle or this cycle, uh, creating an open seat that'll be a toss up. You know, there's more going on than the presidential race. Oh, place there's here. a huge amount going on. Iowa, you know, three of the four congressional districts are absolutely competitive. And the fourth is Steve King, which might be surprisingly competitive. We say this nearly every presidential cycle, but Iowa is definitely going to be the center of the political universe once again. And which gets to my question of like, why Iowa? Why would? Why do you want to spend your sabbatical here instead of say like Hawaii or something like that? <laughs> well, my other choice would seem to be New Hampshire. Okay. Right. <laughs> and so Iowa, New Hampshire. The the reality is. This is where it's happening, and it's happening here because Iowa's first, right? Iowa starts off the game. Iowa's the first place where voters are going to actually cast real votes that matter. And because Iowa is first, 
everybody will come to Iowa. There, there's talk every cycle that maybe not. You know, why do you need to go to Iowa, small state, not very representative? Couldn't you just skip it and just, just get on with it? And every cycle, it seems, they still come back to Iowa. Why? Because it's first. Right, right. And, and, has been, and it really has taken on a more outsized uh, importance, you know, since it was Jimmy Carter, you know, in yeah. his 76 uh, race. Uh, but, but, I mean, this, even so, this feels a little different to me. It, feel, it feels like there's an intensity. You've sat through, you know, 20 some odd political soapbox forty-six, I think it was. I, I meant just the last week. <laughs> no, I just meant <laughs> It only the felt that way, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, I mean, you've, you've, it, yeah. you've, you've seen many in the past and you've been yeah. through most yeah. of them now because they were sort of front loaded Thursday, Friday, yeah. Saturday. Uh, and then we, you just listened to Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of, of South Bend, uh, who had a, a fairly large crowd along the lines of like Bernie Sanders and Especially Warren, for Tuesday. Warren's, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, Tuesday in the middle of the day. Yeah. What is your, is, is, we're not just imagining this, right? Like this no. seems like a bigger deal. No, I don't think you're imagining it. It seems like it to me too. I mean, obviously there are more candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, four years ago, there were 17 Republicans at the beginning and five Democrats. So there aren't that many more candidates total, 24, 25, whatever the number actually is at the moment. But the intensity is different. It has started earlier and it has, um, you know, there were just more people here for the events than I saw four years ago, even for Bernie Sanders four years ago, even for the other candidates. But more than that, the, the people I talk to, the people here, very much are in the mode of paying careful attention. They, they take the role seriously, but they're really not sure what to do with all these candidates. This is really complex from the standpoint of political decision making, mm-hmm. and we're seeing it. Well, and, and this this seems to come up a lot, and you know, I, I, as you might imagine, I have a lot of friends uh, in the in our journalism world who are out there on the road, um, and they they talk to voters, they talk to them at these events where candidates are showing up on a Sunday morning for church and stuff like, and they say like, oh yeah, that was a great speech, very interesting. I especially like what they said about the H one B visa program or right. something like that. And then you know when they're asked like who are you going to support, and they're like I have no idea. No idea. I mean, I have and, no and these, idea. These yeah. are very in-depth, serious policy yeah. discussions that are taking place, even yeah. at, at this sort of gimmicky political yeah. soapbox. Yeah. And yet, there people are still like, I just want to take my time on this one. I, I love the juxtaposition of the Dwayne Register sets up the soapbox, and what do they do? They put hay bales in front of it, right? right. Because Iowa. Right. But then when you listen to what questions people are asking. They're asking about arcane policy and details and pushing the candidates to respond to those things. You know, it's 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 just a fascinating combination here. And I, I think voters right now, Democrats right now, of course, anybody you talk to, nearly anybody you talk to, says the most important thing is, is beating Donald Trump. And I think that's partly why they're having trouble making a decision. There are candidates they like on policy. There are candidates they like on personality. Sometimes it's the same person, sometimes it isn't. But they're really worried about beating Donald Trump. And it's incredibly hard to know until it's already happened whether somebody's electable. And I mean, your expertise is in political psychology, how voters process information. Like, what in in this sort of setting? I mean, they're only reaching a few hundred people, or say a thousand people on a good day. 
uh, at a time. Is this is there a carryover effect? Is this having an effect on other voters who are tuning in? Either? I think it actually does, and it, it's partly the crowds here. People will talk to each other, and they'll say, "Hey, did you see Pete? Did you see Elizabeth? And here's what happened, and here's what I thought." We absolutely get that when people leave the fair, they go back home, they talk to friends and neighbors. Um, but it also matters these days because, of course, everything's accessible, everything's available. The Des Moines Register streams it, it's on the website, you know, the media, you guys are everywhere. You know, there are plenty of ways for people to see what happened without being here. I don't think, you don't get the same feeling without being in the crowd, right? I, one thing I, I thought was really interesting was, was my take on Bernie's crowd. He may have had the largest crowd. It was hard to tell between him and Warren. Pete was pretty big too today. But I didn't feel the enthusiasm in his crowd. I didn't feel the excitement that I felt four years ago or that I felt for Warren or today especially for Buttigieg. And one thing that was interesting about Bernie Sanders' crowd was that he did not take questions. No, he did not. He, and He gave a speech, was sort of a standard yeah. Sanders speech, Medicare for all, yeah. cut drug prices, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I didn't, I'm not trying to demean no, it, no, no, I, absolutely. I heard his speech yeah, a lot. Yeah. And, and then just said, okay, thank you, and, and cut it off. And I thought... All right. I mean, I saw. I mean, Tom Steyer making, you know, back on Sunday making his first big uh, appearance as a candidate. He bantered with a yeah. Trump supporter. Yeah, yeah exactly. In a very non-intimidating. It was actually, manner. I thought, very effective what he did. And you know, and and it was a little bit funny because the Trump supporter had apparently talked to him beforehand, and he promised not to to bash Trump from the stage. Right. The Trump supporter, after his speech, the Trump supporter says, thanks, you did what you said. You're a man of your word. You're a man of honor. Then it, then the next question, Steyer turns around and bashes Trump, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just it was just sort of fascinating. Right. But I, the, the more serious point, taking questions, Iowans really do expect you to take questions. They expect you to engage. And I, I think from a voter processing standpoint, particularly in the current environment, it's incredibly valuable for voters when candidates are challenged by real people mm -hmm. and have to respond, right? You learn a lot about the voter you can, or about the candidate that you don't learn from the stump speech. Right. You learn about whether they're really prepared for the question. You learn about how much they've thought about it and so on. So, you know, Political information processing is tough for most of us because most of us, you and me, are a little bit different, don't pay a lot of attention to politics most of the time. We want to make good decisions, but we want to make quick, easy decisions. And when a candidate stands up and just gives their stump speech and leaves, you're missing a piece of useful information about how they respond. And, you know, he did take questions at the press gaggle. Yeah. They, they bring yeah. the candidates back right. to this tented area yeah. and back to the soapbox, and the press gets yeah. asked some questions. Uh, it can be a, a, as much of a circus-like atmosphere, if not more, because, you know, most uh, the press is like, everybody wants their question, and they only have time for about five or six. Um, so he well, he did take some questions from the press, but I feel like that is a different animal than taking I, uh, like questions from the from the absolutely crowd. yeah. There's no question about it, right? I mean that partly it's because you don't you. I will say any candidate with any experience knows what to expect from the press questions, right? right? They're and and they're reasonably well prepared to deal with them. Not always, but reasonably. You don't really know for sure what you're going to get from the average voter who stands up and, and asks you a question. It might be something very personal to them. It might be an issue they've dealt with. It might be something you know nothing about because that's a farmer who knows every detail of ag policy more than you certainly do as a candidate, right? That's just 
different and how how candidates respond to those questions, a really important signal, I think, to voters to understand, particularly when they've got so many candidates to choose from, to try to figure out how do I winnow this in my own mind. So um, we were talking earlier about the schedule. We, we're, we're kind of almost, we're nearing the end of the, the presidential candidates who are going to be here. Uh, Seth Moulton is still scheduled to, to appear this coming weekend uh, on Saturday, but that's it. Uh, you're here for another several few months how what are what are you going to be looking for because i mean you're i mean the state's going to get inundated you're not going to be able to turn on the television without getting <laughs> right hearing yeah. a lot of ads exactly yeah um, yeah what what are as a political scientist what are you looking for as you're studying this incredibly important election that we're heading into i'm particularly interested in in candidate rhetoric i'm interested in how they're talking what they're saying um, i'm interested in whether they're adjusting it to the audience whether they're recognizing that audiences are different and whether they're focusing appropriately that way. My, my, you know, from four years ago, I saw uh, uh, Marco Rubio seven or eight times at events and could probably give his speech as well as he could by the end of that. It was exactly the same no matter what the audience is. As a political scientist, I'm interested in how candidates adjust to the audience as much as I am in how audiences responded to the, respond to the candidates. Um, so I'm going to be looking for that. I'm also looking, and I think as the media is, for the ground game, for trying to understand what's going on. I know how the caucuses work and what it's about in terms of where you have to get people out, and I want to see if the candidates learn that, if they figure it out. For you know, for everybody other than Bernie, they haven't done it before. Right. And, you know, there are some rules and you have to figure them out. It, it sounds like, I mean, just the sort of the chatter you hear uh, and just the boots on the ground, Elizabeth Warren has a fairly extensive operation here. Uh, Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg, he, um, you know, he's going to these very far-flung places yeah. after he leaves today. I mean, he's going to go around the fair, uh, but then after that he's going to, like, Probably going to butcher all the names of these, uh, like Keokuk and Keokuk, yep. Keokuk yep. and Burlington. Yep. I got that one right. Yep. Uh, and, <laughs> Out uh, in the east part of the state. Yeah. Right, and and oh, and like, and I think Keokuk is in the very southeasternmost yeah. part. Yeah. I mean, like southeast this is corner. a part of the world that most people never yeah. dream about. Absolutely. Uh, so it seems like a different kind of approach. Are you hearing other things about whether other candidates are organized? Because I can't help but yeah. think a lot of the. People polling, not yeah. raising as much money, just don't have that kind of. No, resource. I think that's right. Actually, it it takes a lot of resource to be on the ground effectively in Iowa. This is a little bit early, but in fact, it's the time to be doing it. So, I'm hearing the same thing about Warren. Um, there's a lot of talk that Booker's ground game is looking a lot better than he's looking in the polls. Now, what that means for the long term, we don't know yet. But I will tell you that strategically, you don't want to be the front runner now. Right, you want to be in the position to surprise everybody, not to potentially not do as well as expected, and so building that ground game under the radar, which Booker might be doing to some degree, is potentially a good strategy. But they are going around the state, right? I mean, anyone who has enough money to do it is going to go to all the far-flung parts of of Iowa, whether it's to a cattle call like the Democratic wing ding last Friday night right. in North Central Iowa, Clear Lake, or whether it's individual house parties in, you know, the corner of, you know, wherever Iowa, right. you know, the right. smallest town you can imagine, right. right, they will do this. And it is because the caucus like historically has been very personal. 
to get people out, you have to motivate them on a cold night, right, in the snow, probably, to spend a couple hours. In the dark, in the in cold, the dark, maybe in, in the cornfield. <laughs> All of those things. And, and that really takes the kind of ground game that takes, that proves whether you can organize, proves whether you can raise the money to do it. So for me, looking at the ground game and trying to get a sense of that is as much about understanding whether the candidates have what it takes to organize a national campaign as it goes on. Wrapping up, kind of, uh, you mentioned that you'd run for office before, and you'd also been involved in politics with, say, Dave Loebsack's campaign. Uh, you're, you're kind of on the you're on the other side of the of the uh, divide now as somebody who gets to sort of study it uh, at, at a distance. Do you ever miss it? You ever tempted to run for I, office again? There, it's <laughs> funny when I I was very involved in politics, running for local office in New Jersey. I came out to Iowa. I got involved in the party. You know, ran the caucuses, did other things like that. Then I was lured back to New Jersey to become the director of the Rutgers Eagleton Poll at Rutgers University, statewide poll that's well-respected, been around a long time. And I had to promise to stay out of partisan politics. You can't run a nonpartisan poll and be involved in partisan politics. So for about 10 years, I've been out of it. And yeah, I miss it. But I also don't have the energy I once had to go do it again. So I kind of like being on the side I am. What I know is informed by having done it but also by having studied it. Professor Loretlos, thanks for talking to us. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Our state fair is a great state fair. Don't miss it, don't even delay. It's dollars to donuts that our state fair is the best. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Theater. We'll be back with another podcast in Iowa on Friday, where we'll download our experiences with CQ Roll Call journalists who have traversed the fair and the rest of the state, in barns, house parties, all over the place. Until then, you can catch up on previous episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us. Until then, this is Jason Dick and Political Theater signing off from the Iowa State Fair. <laughs>